The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux, www.freedomainradio.com. Chapter 26, Gordon and Professor Dint. Gordon sat down with his thesis advisor, Professor Dint. Professor Dint was a genial man in his mid-fifties who had escaped system-building and POMO by lightly scorning all attempts at even negative proof. Gordon had chosen him for his sense of humor. He knew that it would be almost impossible for a professor to let him pursue a great idea. The best he could hope for would be that someone would indulge him, let him run on a leash long enough in the hope that he would wear himself out. Professor Dint was quite merry in his nihilism, and nihilism can be quite funny because it punctures pomposity. This is why comedians are excellent social critics but terrible leaders. He shook Gordon's hand, then sat down and grinned. "'So, my dear boy, what mad plan have you brought me today?' "'Well, thanks for meeting me in June. I know it's an odd time.' "'Nonsense! Now give me your manic goodies!' Gordon swallowed. Bringing his great idea to the attention of a nihilist was like lending his horse to a glue merchant. He feared sacrificing mobility for stickiness. "'Well, sir—' "'No, no, no, not sir. Mr. Chips, if you like.' "'All right. I, I have this idea, and it's about Plato—' "'Plato, good, yes, and Aristotle.' Professor Dent laughed and clapped his hands together. <laughs> "'Only two. Well, at least you're learning some restraint.' "'Well, I also want to use Kant, Locke, and Hegel,' the professor nodded energetically. "'Good, yes. I think we can fit them all into my little office. Go on. What have you got?' "'Well,' said Gordon, taking a deep breath, "'do—' Do you mind if I take a few minutes? Not at all. Visiting hours are far from over. All right. Oh, um, this is my idea. There are two basic approaches to truth in philosophy. Just Western philosophy or all? All, I think, but I don't know enough about Eastern philosophy. But I think it's mostly platonic. Well, perhaps you can throw that into a footnote, chuckled Professor Dint, leaning back in his cracked leather chair and gesturing. All right, go on. These two ideas can be called the sensual and the supra-sensual, and I make this distinction around the question of concept formation. Uh, um, take your desk. Sensual philosophy would say that we learn to call this a desk because we see a lot of desks, uh, how they're used, and how people describe them. So we learn about the idea of desk through sensual and social experience. Gordon's heart pounded, his freckled forehead prickled with sweat. Now, suprasensual philosophy says that before we are born, we float in a realm of perfect ideas. Among these is a perfect desk. So after we're born, when we see a desk, we have a, a vague memory of the perfect desk we saw before birth and know how to categorize each individual desk based on its affinity to the one perfect desk. Professor Dint frowned. Is that your idea? It's more of a restatement. No, no, that's just the preamble, said Gordon, taking another deep breath. Oh, I can't seem to get enough air. But why sensual thinkers? Well, the idea is whether we form concepts through the senses, whether we learn that a desk, what a desk is through experience, or whether our concepts exist independent of, or prior to, our experiences in the world. All right. Suprasensual seems a bit obscure. There's no good way to put it that I can think of. It's just defined as truth derived from something above the senses. Above? Well, in that it is not derived from the senses, but it is considered superior to the senses. I thought of oversensual, but that sounds like a nymphomaniac. Well, I've always wondered about Plato. All right, we'll accept your terms for now, but it's not enough for a thesis. I know, I know. This is my thesis, my, my great idea. All, all sensual thinkers are compelled by the logic of their basic beliefs to advocate limited democracy as the ideal political model, while all supra-sensual thinkers must advocate totalitarian dictatorship as the ideal political model. There was a long silence in the room. Dust hovered, uncertain of gravity. That can't possibly be proved, said Professor Dent. That kind of philosophy is a language game. You can define things however you want. I, 
I, I, I really think it can be proved. Good Lord, you can't even prove where the concept of death comes from. How are you going to prove that Stalin saw it before he was born? I mean, there's ambition, which is fine in its own way for the young, but I don't have any idea how this could even be approached. And even if you found a way to do it, do you really think that you can explain Plato to Plato? It's like trying to improve on Moonlight Sonata. I, 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 just, I just think there's, there's a pattern, and there may be, depending on how you define things. But that's just a rhyming pattern, not real content. But uh, there is more than just opinion in, perhaps, of course, but picture this. Even if I accepted that you could prove this, and you went off and tried to, and it turned out that you couldn't, or thought you could, but found that can't love democracy, then any advisor would have to fail you. Why? Because, my boy, if your thesis is to find a flying cow, and you go around the world and can't find one, no one will give you a master's for proving that flying cows do not exist. If you define the terms, negative proof won't fly. So even if it could be proved, you would have to prove it with enough credibility to... <laughs> oh no, it's not possible. As your advisor, I can't permit you to go off on this mad chase. The power of my real desk will have to replace the seduction of your conceptual ones. What else do you have? Gordon's vision was swimming. Uh, 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 well, I was thinking of proving that the Industrial Revolution was not the grim horror everyone thinks it was. I mean, life expectancy. These are achievements to cap one's whole career, if they are even possible, interrupted Professor Dint. This is a master's thesis, Gordon, not a manifesto. You want to tackle the causes and consequences of a mistranslation, or how the beliefs of a small Protestant sect changed over two years, or how the idea of crop rotation threat spread through a province of Poland, something like that. You can't start so big, you don't have the experience to pull something like this off. Einstein did, younger than me, said Gordon to himself, feeling red welts of humiliation spreading from his neck. He took another deep, shuddering breath. So you're saying... You, you, you can't approve this thesis. Maybe for a PhD, or more likely something postdoctoral. You have a hundred pages maximum to prove. <laughs> and, and, and you can't even read any of these philosophers except Locke in the original. So you'd be prey to all sorts of translation errors and interpretations. No, you have to start with something more manageable. <laughs> but I will say that you are unique, he finished with a laugh. Would you be, be adverse to me talking to another professor about this? The older man shrugged. No, of course not. Perhaps perhaps I am old and fussy and hidebound. Talk to some of the younger professors, he said, with an odd twinkle in his eye. See what they have to say. I won't have any objection to approving your thesis if you have a supervisor who shares your vision. Thanks. I, I, I do appreciate that. Do you want a career in academics? asked the professor suddenly. I, I, I've thought about it. I, I, I'd like to teach, but... Yes? I don't think I have the patience. You can develop that. But you'd have to work some of this grandiosity out of your system. I don't mean to be harsh or, or critical, but you want to take on more than can be achieved. It will only serve to alienate people. Achieved or accepted, thought Gordon, but he said nothing. He felt that he was on a trembling precipice, and that all his hopes could be dashed by a shrug, a spread of hands, a wry smile without teeth. Oh, um, who... Who should I talk to? Well, perhaps Professor Edmund or Islington. You could also try the history department, see if anyone would let it slip through as intellectual history, something like that. What about theology? I'm an atheist. Yes, but as a thinker, you should be unbiased. I don't think that would work out. Given the conclusions of my thesis, I'd feel bad about biting the hands that fed me. The, the conclusions? You mean, please... Tell me, no, don't tell me, that you are proposing to tell us which one is right? My, my, my plan was to introduce the split, then showcase the views of the philosophers, then show which view was the valid one. Professor Dint's jaw dropped. Oh, sweet Lord, you want to expose a hidden seam in philosophy, trace its logic through the thinking of four great philosophers, and then show us who is right? There was a long pause. Gordon's eyeballs began to pulse. He did not breathe. Professor Dent leaned forward, amusement and pity mingled in his gaze. Good luck, he said, as if luck had anything to do with it.
Walking down to the cafeteria, weird confrontations always sparked his sweet tooth. Gordon fought the discomfort of madness. He didn't come up with any arguments against my idea, thought Gordon in the lineup. Two Rice Krispie Squares and a half liter of milk sat on his tray. And this enraged him. He said it was too ambitious, that I lacked training and skills, but he didn't ask me anything about the idea itself, the fucking coward. I bet he has Aristotle on the shelf in his office, but he can't recognize one in his chair. Well, that was, that was too much, he knew, comparing himself to Aristotle. Grandiosity is a poor substitute for insecurity. But, but of course I am saying that I can interpret these thinkers better than they did themselves, and that I know which among them is the more accurate. Of course, there was pride and arrogance in that viewpoint, but Gordon did not see himself as testing his wits against Plato, but rather as testing Plato against reason. It was, uh, it was impersonal, like rechecking someone's scientific theory. Reason! The guttural voice growled in his ear. Gordon jumped, almost dropping his tray. The voice continued. Was it reason that produced the great idea? No, 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 I, I, I have no idea where... Do not jump to conclusions about what is rational. And give me a bite of Rice Krispie Square. Um, we, we use the same mouth. Yes, but it's better if you talk. I am not so polite and servile. Well, uh, as, as long as I'm, I'm good for something. Gordon's conversation with P.D., due to the guttural nature of the voice he had named it Flem Dude, was cut short by Gus sitting down at the table. How's it going, Gordy? asked Gus. Not great. Just had my thesis idea shot down. Was it yours or off the professor's to-do list? Mine. Ouch. Sorry to hear that. All dressed up. No place to go. He said I could shop it around to other profs. Gus sucked in his cheeks. Ooh, that's not good. Why? It means you're the traveling freak show. What? It's such a wacky idea, he doesn't want to keep you all to himself. You're a roadshow. He's probably emailing his friends right now. He ought to be good for a giggle. Sorry, man. So, you don't think I have a chance? How would I know? You keep this great idea closer to your chest than your nipples. By the way, I'd suggest an undershirt for this level of air conditioning. You look like a swimsuit calendar. Girls of Alaska. Gordon glanced down. Sure. Why won't you tell me your idea? Gus asked Gus, chewing violently. You don't believe in great ideas. Not true. Spray-on hair is a great idea. Gordon smiled. See, I don't have anything that good. Gus looked over Gordon's head. Hey, it's the babblefish. Dude! He waved. Doesn't dude sort of end when you stop riding the half-pike and grooving to treble charger? Don't talk to me, dude who uses the word grooving. Rudy came and sat down. How are you, my lads? Currently holding a wake said Gus. Gordy boy just came back from his th first thesis massacre. Ah, said Rudy, also known as your thesis is thesis. T.A. or full prof? Professor Dint, said Gordon. So only slightly less likely to reject your thesis and steal your idea, said Rudy. How did you present it? Gordon shifted uncomfortably. I don't really want to talk about the idea. Sure, but you only speak pigdin, right? Perhaps. What? What is it? Plain speak. Old speak, said Gus. Ella Orwell. What? All right, tell me what sociology is. I'm not in sociology. Rudy shrugged. So what? Haven't you ever heard the story of Professor Soquet? No. So, uh, 1996, there's this physics professor called Soquet. Sokal, said Gus. Sure. He gets sick and tired of hearing sociology referred to as a discipline, so he cobbles together some article he knows is pure nonsense, but throws in vague leftist rhetoric and all the pomo nonsense, and then sends it off to Social Text, a leading sociology journal, and they print it as the centerpiece of the edition. Why? Because he said that reality was a social and linguistic construct, that quantum physics is compatible with POMO theories of knowledge, and that POMO science has abolished objective reality, and that all science is political... After it's published, Prof. Sokal comes forward and says, Hey, you guys just published an article written by someone with no training in sociology and no idea what he was talking about. Rudy smiled. What does this tell, you, tell us? Well, there's no difference between Pomo and Babel. There's no difference between someone with 15 years training in sociology and someone with no training at all. In other words, sociology as a discipline does not exist. What happened to Sokal? Everything, of course, and nothing. 
He was vilified for showing a lack of respect for his comrades, much as someone who exposes a counterfeiting ring would be condemned for embarrassing the thieves. But he, I thought he had the best line of the whole story. What was that? He said, Hey, if what I did was wrong, I respectfully suggest that any sociologist who so chooses should submit a physics article to any refereed physics journal and so get published there. Mwah! Beautiful. What does that have to do with new speak and old speak? New speak is sociology, POMO. Old speak is physics. Meaning, new speak is anything which cannot be reduced to essentials. It's an infinity of those Russian dolls within dolls things. New speak contains no primary definitions, no immutable laws, no components that can be clearly defined and agreed on. Everything is opinion. You are trying to prove something with your thesis, right? Of course. So you speak pigged in, said Gus. Old speak, true talk, Rudy shrugged. So, Gordy, I specialize in the translation of pigged in to pomo. For instance, give me your definition of sociology. All right, said Gordon, frowning for a moment. I guess sociology is the study of the ideas which are taken for granted in large groups. Beautiful, applauded Rudy. If Pigton could be poetry, said Gus, you would be the one to write it. But that would never fly in academics. Too defined, too in the open, too open to challenge. Questioning academics must be like playing whack-a-mole on ecstasy. The moles and the whacker, said Gus. Isn't that a bestiality movie? asked Rudy. No, that's please, riddle and spawn, said Gordon, cupping his hands over his mouth and imitating an X-wing pilot. Stay on target, stay on on target. Just tell us the damn thesis, said Rudy. We can we can operate on something which does not exist, but not in the dark. All right, said Gordon. Stealing himself, he told them what he had told Professor Dent. It was amazing. The degree to which the great idea had the ability to shut down the wild grids of people's frontal lobes. Gus and Rudy stared at him, unblinking. Mr. Kurtz, he dead, whispered Gus, finally. That is the most beautiful thing I have ever heard, cried Rudy, clapping his hands and turning to Gus. How much acid do we have on hand? Gus looked down his shirt. A vat and a half. Not bad. Enough? Hard to say, something this big. What are you talking about? demanded Gordon, feeling giddy. Rudy smiled. Professors have no teeth. We, we have to dissolve this idea into a liquid and feed it to them slowly, so that they don't know when they've bitten off more than they can chew. Gus raised a freckled forearm, snapping his fingers. Waiter, a blender for my friend's metaphor. Set it to frappe. Oh, so it's okay to add a new metaphor to a mixed bag? Okay, okay, said Gordon, holding up his hands. I'm on two Rice Krispie squares and a bellyful of bitter disappointment. We will need to upshift this idea into the stratosphere, said Rudy. It's too bald a statement. We need to rogain it, Rudy said. I always wanted to shave my head and get a tattoo on the top saying, This side up. Gus bent over the plastic table, laughing hard. No, no, it should be, If you can read this, you're orbiting too low. The table dissolved into hysterical laughter, and half-gasped jokes followed. Gordon could not resist. Some madness is better than others. Chapter 27. Terry and the Database Builder There were five thick documents on Terry's desk. He had long since given up trying to fight his tears. No time, no time, no time, no time. Dave had sat him down that morning. How is Cyrix coming along? They want to see the software on Friday, just to see how things look. It's really hard. We have to switch between metric and imperial measurements. So, what, you put a button on the screen to switch? Yes, but it's... The user has to be able to switch between the two at will, and the reports are hell because... Listen, I have absolute confidence in you. You are a genius. Let me know if there's anything I can do. On another topic, I have set up a demonstration on Wednesday with General Mills and their head of IT is going to be there, and my contact has told me that this guy is wild about, uh, uh, uh query, querying, querying mechanisms? I don't know what, well, you know, 
How everyone says, how do I know how many leaking underground storage tanks there are? We have a pretty pathetic response. Well, that was true. Terry's database included sorting, so he would go to the box that said, Tank ever leaked? and sort the answers in ascending order. Terry then clicked through the records. When the yeses changed to noes, he looked at the record number. 15 of 120. So there are 15, see? Terry would finish horribly aware of the lameness of the solution. This guy, said Dave, will approve the system if we have a way of querying for data which is flexible and lets the users set up their own filters. But I, 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 I can't do anything by Wednesday. Dave scowled. Terry, I have already bought the plane tickets. But that means travel and I have to have Cyrix ready by Friday. You've been working too hard. It's not that. I, 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 just, I just I can't do everything you want me to do. That's a problem. But hey, we're in business to solve problems. Hire someone. I know you keep saying that, but I never have time to interview or, or, or train anyone. This isn't the most common field on the planet. Okay, okay. Look, I apologize if we've been running too hard. Let's do this. After your Cyrix presentation Friday, I'll find a way to buy us some breathing room. But listen, that presentation on Wednesday is crucial. It's the only shot we've got. I don't care if this querying thing actually works, mock it up, make some vaporware, whatever. But we have to have some sort of answer for this guy. This is a far higher priority than the demo to Cyrix. We already got their PO. If you don't think you can get anything ready for General Mills, I'll call right now and cancel the meeting. But I don't want us just holding our dicks in that boardroom. Dave stared at Terry, his nostrils flaring slightly. The invasive weight of disappointment hung so thick that Terry felt his vision blur. I have no choice. I can't blow the sail to General Mills, can't disappoint Cyrix, can't let Dave down. I'll do my best, he said, his heart hissing into the slow acid of another lust weekend. Chapter 28. Pomo in slow-mo. Business students. Rudy's next show was about business students. He smiled gamely into the little cameras holding up his first placard. Business students. One striking aspect of the modern university is the degree to which trust in the future ethics of its students is extended through time. In general, there are three types of time trust. The immediate, which are the engineering and science students, the intermediate, which are the business students, and the near-infinite, which are the art students. If society is a house, we trust the engineers that it will not fall down. The business students that we can afford it and the art students that we will be happy there. Now, everyone solves the problem of depth in their own way. Life is complicated, evil, difficult to detect, love, hard to sustain. Trust must weather without breaking. Truth should be helpful, honesty, well-timed, one's own desires, the desires of others, the right thing to do and when to do it. The balance of present and future pleasures, these are all very difficult, especially in a world which changes so rapidly that the aged have little to offer us but bewildered clichés. Most people grope their way through life, settling their fortunes to a large degree on a combination of what they're good at, what is offered, what is popular, and often, sadly, what they can get away with. Art students solve the problem of depth by muddying the waters. Assuming that the seabed is forever beyond the reach of man, they try to ascertain the health of the ecosystem by combing the beaches for poisoned fishes. Business students, on the other hand, solve the problem through envy. Ah, envy. Envy is the great weather vane, compass, and illusory bedrock of the modern age. In the prior ages of inherited power, envy was pointless. It has become all-powerful now that a man can make his own fortune. Envy is the business student's solution to the great problem of how to live one's life. In business, 
something has value if it is desired. To a business student, a person's life has worth if it is desired. If a man's wealth can be tastefully displayed, his air gracious and only mildly condescending, if he can respond to all newcomers as if they want something from him, and especially if he can be seen to combine wealth with generosity, a habit common to all kings, if he can get people to believe that he has reached the phase in life where he wants to give back to the community, why then the businessman has achieved the greatest goal of the business student. He has no idea who he is, but people envy him, so he must be something. There are more characteristics which should be noted about business students. First of all, except for their hair, they're completely unremarkable physically. In the modern world, beauty is destiny. Ugly people go into manual labor, pretty people into the service and helping professions and the arts, and average-looking people into bureaucracies. The person who rises to the top in any bureaucracy usually has the following characteristics. One, the ability to inspire fear and overtime, usually at great cost to the employee. Two, lots of rage, usually sublimated into scalding perfectionism. Three, really good hair. Having never really connected with their parents and possessing great sexual insecurity, the business students seek attention through domination. They have great holes where their hearts should be, which they fill with the envy of others. They can never relate to other people as equals and have no real idea of win-win negotiations. They sacrifice themselves to their employers when young, then, when they gain power, drain those they rule. Their personal lives are complete messes. They bounce from relationship to relationship, and the only friends they retain in middle age are those they made in their teenage or university years. These are the professional women who smile grimly through dates, telling men not to get any ideas because they know all about advertising. When confronted with any difficult truth, they end the conversation, saying they will have to think about it, but never return to the arena. In their late thirties, their sublimated maternalism erupts to the feline and they harden their barren wombs into over-sentimental litter-boxes, giving up on men and never blaming themselves. In short, like anyone who lives to be envied, they go through a twenty-year period of pillaging the desires of others, usually twenty-five to forty-five, and then with a sudden, almost audible pop, they become objects of pity. These people are obvious in the media, they're harder to see in business. However, all you have to do is look for bosses whose employees whisper that they wish you would start dating again so they could all go home already. What else is common to these people? Well, they have a lifetime sense of being given marks for right and wrong behavior. All extracurricular activities are chosen for their effect. They will become fratholics if that will help them with future contacts. Even their charitable activities are well chosen. Nothing political, nothing feminist, nothing philosophical. They are strongly drawn to the plight of the homeless, naturally, since the homeless have pretty much lost the sense of being marked for right and wrong behavior. One of the strong markers for being in the presence of these white-collar sociopaths is that everything they say is predictable and unanswerable. If they tell you about their weekend, they're always doing something cool. The closest they can get to individuality is to combine two popular activities, like rock climbing and drinking games. They ski, of course and have access to cottages, that is a given. When young, they drink to access before golfing, that is the closest they can come to irony. They dance badly, they love showing people around their houses. They have flags on their walls in university. They drive the market for school jackets and bizarre, bulky rings. They have a reverence for business leaders, ascribing them every virtue under the sun. They really, really want to live in a world where money equals morality unlike the art students, who hope that talent equals morality. Because they're over-specialized and under-humanized, they like to believe that if you're good at one thing, you're good at many things. They are resolutely concrete. They have no patience for psychology, except of the manipulative kind, like the psychology of negotiation, or 101 ways to close a sale by reading body language. They will take sex wherever they get it. Ooh, they hate art students and love violent movies. They resist modern philosophy like the plague it is. They're fascinated by young millionaire stories. For them, 
Success is personal income, not corporate longevity, like a doctor who values money more than his patient's health. They are, generally, not very funny. For good, accurate, and hopeless humor, go to the arts coffee shop. Like many people who love invoking envy, they are manic and fascinated by endurance. They run marathons, drink steadily to excess, go on hunger fasts, love ferocious sports, put off studying until they have to go for days without sleep, and play cards all weekend. They also have the most exhausting camping trips, unlike artsies who rarely camp, and will talk endlessly about their sexual stamina. These manics are both fascinating and dangerous because of their lack of reality testing. They will talk about anything and are often oddly perceptive. Their blind honesty and random accuracy do give them a certain air of depth or self-knowledge. Repressed souls are especially drawn to them because they appear bold and jaunty and unrestrained. They seem to have all the freedom that the shy long for. So, when a new acquaintance leans forward at lunch and asks you if you've ever had anal sex, or takes you on a pub crawl that lasts all weekend, or gives you the impression that you can overleap all restraints in a single bound, and makes you feel that all your prior personality was nothing but inhibition, and fills you with giddy helium courage, and nods as you talk, as if all your worries are inconsequential, and is both exhausting and irresistible, then you are in the presence of a true manic. And the worst part is that you will focus on him or her rather than the mania in yourself, which makes you so susceptible to such a magnetic vacuum. Chapter 29. Rudy Downshifts Gordon's Great Idea. All right, said Rudy. Now sit, listen, and learn to unlearn. He and Gordon sat in his dorm room, a shoebox walled with huge painted bricks. Outside it was sunny and cold. Gus had begged off claiming a date. Being a true intellectual, Gordon couldn't understand choosing a woman over philosophy. I can translate, said Rudy, sitting cross-legged on his bed, but I'm no savant. I know what I'm doing. Pomo is the natural result of radical skepticism. Yet Pomo is activist, isn't it? asked Gordon. It has a plan of action. Rudy shrugged, then laughed. I don't really know that one. Too deep for me. That's spinal surgery. The point is that we have to find some way to translate your mad scheme into Pomo. So let's go into Pomo mode. Pomo mode? suggested Gordon. Rudy grabbed a Coke from a tiny fridge. Perhaps. Want one? No, thanks. He flopped back on his bed. So Pomo is pretty much Marxism. Did you know that? No. Come on, it's all class conflict and, and oppressed workers and grassroots resistance. They actually advocate revolution against the West. Did you know that? No. It's quite foolish, actually. Well, distasteful is more like it. They take money from Western taxpayers to preach terrorism to third world malcontents. No, come on. It's true. It's an admirable scam, don't you think? They take money from domestic capitalists to preach insurrection to their foreign workers. I'm quite sure they'd delight in it if they were able to see anything that clearly. Don't you have a problem with it? We'll get to my beliefs another time, said Rudy, taking a deep draught of coke. He burped. The point is that you have to understand how the language works. First of all, there's no such thing as proof. There's only one route to credibility in Pomo circles, and that is to quote someone every Pomo worships, you know, Marshall McLuhan, Michel Foucault, Pierre Derrida, or anyone with a recognizably ethnic name will do, and then speak as if their theories are facts. For instance, you can say, as Foucault notes, or in McLuhan's analysis, and no more questions will be asked, oh, and use, use hermeneutics or transgressive hegemony. Can I write this down? Sure. Gordon took out his notebook. So, uh, no proof. Okay, the next thing you have to realize is that there's no such thing as objectivity. Gordon blinked. None? Not even the senses? They never go that deep, of course. There are, quote, power structures, which, quote, control discourse and, quote, set agendas. Every belief, well, every Western belief anyway, exists to maintain Western power over the minds of the poor in other countries. Through advertising and mainstream art, corporations have to create the belief, say, that the American way of life is the best way of life. Only then can they profit from jeans and hamburgers and pop. 
or uh, on a more subtle level, the West repeats over and over that material progress is the only valid way for society to move forward, and this creates artificial demand for Western products like you know Walkmans, barbecues, and vacuum cleaners. You export ideas so you can export goods. Okay. But it's important that values like progress and wealth are not presented as options or within the context of competing beliefs. The point, like Newspeak, is to eliminate dissension by eliminating the language that could express it. If progress always equals material progress, then people will be unable to conceive of moving forward in a different direction. They would have no more idea of direction than a rock falling from a cliff. Down just is. You're quite convincing. Why? Well, it sort of makes sense. I see. Why? Well, it's like advertising. Everybody wants a Coke. How so? Um, th those are the only billboards I saw in my travels. Rudy blinked. So, people like Coke. Does that somehow limit their thinking? I don't think so. I do find it strange that intellectuals say that the West is somehow uniform in its belief when we not only allow but pay intellectuals to attack the very basis of our society. These same intellectuals also have great presence in the third world through development programs in the UN. If we are also uniform in our belief in the absolute value of material progress, why do almost all our intellectuals think otherwise? I don't believe that the uniformity is in our society, but in our intellectuals. What? You lost me. Well, can our professors even think in terms of reason, truth, and objectivity anymore? There was silence. Then Gordon shuddered. That's a rather creepy thought. Rudy smiled gently. Come on, you're psychologically aware. When most people claim to describe the world, they're in fact describing themselves. Unless they are one of the philosophical gods of the ages, when they're talking about conditions in the third world, they're talking about their own lives. What? Well, they talk about power structures stifling debate, Try seeing what happens when you suggest proving something in philosophy, or writing about the virtues of the free market, or the value of reason and objectivity. You die on the vine. Uniformity of belief. They're not talking about capitalism, corporations, and peasants. They're talking about academia, themselves, and their students. Gordon shuddered. I'm, re I'm really starting to freak here, Rudy grinned. And what is the nature of this kind of debate? They're obsessed with the exploitation of the proletariat while they themselves live on the dollars of the working classes. How so? Everyone pays taxes. Yeah, but how many children of truck drivers go to university? Not many, I suppose. It's an institution for upper and middle class children, disproportionately paid for by the lower classes, since they rarely go. Exploitation of the foreign poor by corporations. Who pays the bill for domestic academics? The poor! Gordon paused. I, I think that had better be your last coke. Rudy ignored him. Look at this as well. Pomos believe that corporations create artificial markets by pretending that the Western way of life is the best, the only way of life. Well, how many non-academics benefit from this belief, which debases almost everything the average person believes in? Who even knows what the hell these people are talking about? No one except the academics themselves. They create an artificial, self-contained market by pretending that POMO is the best, the only way to think. And they dare to talk about the artificial markets created by corporations? Apparently, said Gordon, staring at Rudy's red face, the babblefish was starting to look a bit like the pufferfish. And POMOs also hate corporations for having no respect for the culture and history of the countries they do business in? So let me ask you this. Do POMOs have any respect for the culture and history of the country they live in? Everything they say about hating the West or blaming the West, what respect do they have for our culture? But they shouldn't just parrot the status quo, should they? Hell, that's all they're doing now. I'm not saying they shouldn't criticize the West, just that they're being paid by taxpayers for undermining the societies that the taxpayers sort of like. It's not too much to ask for someone you pay for to provide some sort of benefit for you, is it? Is it? Gordon shook his head slowly. No, 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 of course not. Rudy nodded, exhaling, then shrugged. Oh, sorry, dude, that, that's been building up for some time. <laughs> I've noticed this year that just about every thesis I see from students is more or less the same thing. And that means that every grad student is more or less the same person. There's a lack of diversity that, that rather troubles me. These people are so full of shit, their eyes are brown. 
I don't know if there's such a thing as objective truth, but true relativism should allow for the possibility. It's, and it's not even being debated anymore. Except by me, murmured Gordon. Rudy nodded excitedly. Yes, except by you. That's why I want to help. I'm on the fence, I know, but I do want to at least keep the debate alive. So, tell me your thesis again. You have another Coke? Help yourself. Gordon grabbed one and opened it. After taking a drink, he said, My thesis is that all sensual thinkers are compelled by the logic of their basic beliefs to advocate limited democracy as the ideal political model, while all supersensual thinkers must advocate totalitarian dictatorship as the ideal political model. There was a pause. Rudy whistled. Gets me every time. Where did you come up with that? Gordon paused, then shook his head. I don't really know. Shit. Inspiration. Tough one, Blaze. All right. Now you have a plus and a minus. First you're talking about self-referential logic, which is a plus. Pomos are quite happy talking about logic as long as it's circular, as in the logic of capital accumulation. The minus is that you are damning Pomos, and that's going to be a rather stiff hurdle. Pomos? I was thinking more about Plato. Sure, but Pomos don't believe in empirical reason or objectivity either. And as Marxists or socialists, they prefer totalitarian dictatorships or central planning, which you, I assume, will say are bad. Well, they are. Maybe, but you're going to have to forget all of that for now. Rudy frowned. Okay. Now, the only way this thing has even a chance of flying is if you can remove the value judgments or, or turn them around. Instead of limited democracy, can you say capitalism? I had that down first, but I didn't think it would fly. Oh, it will. You were just looking at it the wrong way. Now, instead of totalitarian dictatorship, can you say centrally planned economy? Gordon paused. Well, th that's, that's kind of the same thing. So is faith and prejudice, but the language is all. That's going to suck me into economics. All the better. Nobody will want to follow you there. They'll just graze the text looking for the words structure or encapsulation. Rudy's eyes scanned Gordon's text rapidly. By the way, what the hell is suprasensual, a tantric action figure? It means knowledge not derived from the senses. Hmm, ba, ba, ba. that's going to be a little grim. Because Pomos don't believe in the senses? No, because they don't believe in knowledge. Ah. Rudy chewed on his straw. Oh, unfounded paradigms which result in untestable actions, he murmured, frowning mightily. All right, um, you, you can't use knowledge. Uh, well, uh, here, you, you use your pen to get these. Use uh, tendencies, uh, directions, construction, bias, uh, and, and the phrase follows from. Uh, and never use proof. Use uh, points out, argues, notes, uh, advocates, prefers, refers to, imagines. And if you're writing about two men, use M-E-S-S-R-S. -S -S. I, I don't know why, but it seems snarky. Oh, you want me to write with swamp water? You have to imagine this thesis as an exercise in pure mathematics. No physics, no engineering. Just numbers wrapping with numbers. How would I deal with the senses? Oh, you have to eliminate them completely. Nothing you write about can touch the planet in any direct way. You want, to, you want to seem clever like you're performing acrobatics in zero gravity, but not committed to anything you say. Create the impression of random curiosity, not focused intent. Oh, and, and use the prepubescence test. Do I get that from the police? Imagine reading this to someone 12 or under. Would they have any clue what it was about? If so, start stretching those syllables... Child abuse. Yeah, yeah, but you want the piece of paper, right? Okay, another problem. DWGs. Sorry? Uh, dead white guys. Your choice of sources is death on a stick. You can't be talking about Plato and Aristotle. Somehow they don't, they don't fall under the now correct umbrella of gay writers, probably because they weren't self-destructive enough. You have to find some Inuit or Tibetan thinkers who also follow the same continuum. Tibetan empiricists? Are you nuts? You can only use DWGs as whipping boys. Aristotle is only okay if you're willing to slag empirical rationalism. I can't do that. Then you have to go beyond the obvious. 
find this senses versus faith bit somewhere other than ancient Greece. It will be very hard to obscure your intent if you use well-known writers. Do you read any obscure languages? No, but I feel like I'm learning one now. Shame. All right. All right, we're almost there. Okay. Um, I would... Okay, I would suggest something like this. My thesis by Gordon B. Vaporware is that the basic tenets of capitalist economics are derived from a belief structure which posits as one of its axioms a prejudice that an object can be separate from its interpretation. Oh, this fiction is used to justify uh, exploitation on a myriad of psychosocial and biosexual levels. Oh, Rudy passed a hand over his eyes. Fuck me, it's like translating a Kevin Smith script into Latin. Go on, I'm writing. Okay, okay. Um, okay. Opposed to this paradigm is, is, is a continuum of belief which posits a, f a flexible approach to the tr traditional subject-object dichotomy. Instead of imagining that a thing can be separate from its meaning, it, it advocates a relational approach to, uh, to, to, um, to competing meanings, balancing existing myths by giving a voice to those groups whose meaning has been eclipsed by the, by the, by the overwhelming y uniformity of the dominant uh, messaging. Oh! Take a breath, cried Gordon. Rudy was sweating, his eyes bulged, rolling back. I'm, 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 all, I'm all right, he panted, a facial tick, lifting his cheek like an invisible hook. O -o Almost done. You sound like Superman shitting a stick of kryptonite. And, get, get this, it's almost killing me, and allows the social group to balance unheard narratives by providing a forum for the community to work at finding a balance between culture and and change. Rudy fell back on the narrow bed, his face bright with sweat, his hands shaking. Oh my god, I, I am never doing that again without an epidural. <sighs> Did you get it? Yes, most of it. N n n all of it, I think. Gordon was looking at his pad, shaking his head. It's, it's pretty mutant. Rudy took a deep, shuddering breath. Oh, man, it's hard to upsize things with content. I'm more used to cloaking absence than hiding presence. Thanks a million, said Gordon. Oh, Christ above, that was nothing. Nothing? You're sweating. I mean, it's nothing compared to your job. Oh, you mean... Oh, yeah, baby. Writing a hundred pages of it. Gordon stared at him, his eyes widening slowly. Chapter 30 Sarah Listens at the Cottage Sarah didn't like doing this, but she needed more material. The family was up at the cottage. It was late at night, late in May. She could hear everything going on in her parents' room without even straining. Her mother said, So, how's the business going? Her father laughed richly. Oh, baby, I think this could be the one. This is like telephony on steroids. So it's working out? Well, not well enough for a shopping spree, material girl, but so far so good. And the kid, what's his name? Terry, Terry boy, the Terrinator. How is he? He's a productive little toadstool. I have to ride him hard, but he bends. What kind of growth are you looking at? Uh, I don't know. Couple million. Why, are you looking to invest? Her mother laughed. Sure, right, you take coupons, right? We'll be back on our feet soon, you know. And it wasn't me that decided a yacht would be just great for the kids. Hey, if I had any idea that you were about to auger in, why the hell did you okay the buy if you knew things were that bad? Sarah wrote, Dad did not tell Mom his last business was going down. Shit, honey, you know I had to pretend everything was going well so we'd get the final investment. Conspicuous spending looks confident. Sarah wrote, He got money after he knew it was going bad. So you were confident? Of course. The market for educational software just disappeared. Everyone in the field got burned. 
Did you do enough marketing? How can a market just disappear? Look, things are going well. I don't want to rake over old business. Let's just enjoy our latest find. Angela said gently, Dave, I just... I just want to know how things are going, really. Why? Because successful entrepreneurs are just so sexy. Well, I can see that. There was a pause, some rustling. Sarah was about to put her pillow over her head. Then she heard her mother. I'd really like to sit down and really talk with Terry. Pause. Why? He's not a successful entrepreneur. I never know anyone you're in business with. Christ, I'm not in business with him. He has shares, doesn't he? Sure, a few, but he doesn't make any decisions. I just... Keep his little hamster wheel spinning. Whizz, faster, baby, faster. Sarah wrote, Terry doesn't make any decisions. Why not? Eh, he's just a kid. He's no idea about finances. I keep all of that far away from him. And you. Sarah wrote, Terry doesn't know anything about the finances. So what's up for this week? Well, we've got a demo with General Mills on Wednesday and a meeting with Cyrix Friday to show them what we've got. Do you have any idea how Terry is doing? I know squat about software, and I want to keep it that way. Typing to the Beastie Boys at 3 a.m. doesn't exactly turn my crank, Sarah wrote. Dad knows nothing about software. Do you think it'll work? I don't know. But that boy will kill himself trying. That'll have to do. So you sell to General Mills Wednesday. Shit, no, it'll take months to make that sale. Wednesday, we just know whether we're eliminated in the first round. Okay, but if things go well at Cyrix on Friday... Ah, that's a nothing contract, name only, 18K, but it's, uh, it's good publicity. When are you looking for your next round of financing? Uh, well, we're always looking. The market's a bit tight right now. What are you looking for? What the hell are you talking about, Deb? Okay, you tell me how the kids did on their last tests. I'll talk finances with you. Why get so shitty with me? I'm stroking your breast and you're talking finances? If I wanted to have sex with investors, I'd have buried it in the fucking contract. All right, God, I hate your flips. You want me to show more interest in your work? Here it is. Yeah, that's what I meant. What are you trying to prove? Sure, stop blowing me to ask me about my day? Yeah, that makes sense. You are truly sensitive. What is your problem? And tomorrow, I'll do the dishes in bed. You are an asshole. Well, let's say this. You are officially off the hook when it comes to asking me about my day. I'd rather keep it to my fucking self. Fine. Jesus Christ, fine. God forbid Lord Dave should not get exactly what he wants, exactly when he wants it. Why are you picking a fight? I just told you you were off the hook. It's late. Shut up. There was silence. Sarah gazed at what she'd written, then tore it up and threw it in a corner. She turned over, screwed her eyes shut, and pulled the pillow over her head.